Hi, this is Brian uh, jumping in with a post-production note before we get going. First off, as we're as we're recording this, Rabbi Jacob Staub, our our executive producer and and soul behind all this, is is still recovering from heart surgery. He's doing well, but we're wishing him a refuah shlema and, and full recovery, and and looking forward to having him uh, back at the helm soon. And I guess second thing, um, much more minor note, if you can tell, I'm a little hoarse. I'm battling uh, battling a summer cold. And just so if it if it sounds a little different, uh, know that we record the introduction and and some of the other stuff um, after we do the interview. So if you if you hear like a sudden voice change, that's that's the reason. From my home studio, welcome to Evolve: Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. If the vast majority of synagogues in our country, which are Ashkenazi, really want to do a welcoming, that rather than simply saying, we tolerate you, say, we not only welcome you into our Ashkenazic customs, but we celebrate you as Sephardic Jews. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. And our guests today are Rabbi Leila Gal Berner and Rabbi Barbara Aiello. We'll be discussing Rabbi Berner's Evolve essay, Sephardi Crypto Jews, Real Jews or Remnants of a Distant Past. And that essay grew out of Berner's scholarly work on Spanish Jewry, as well as her rabbinic experiences working with individuals seeking to reclaim a Jewish identity and practice that was stolen from them centuries before their births. We're gonna focus on how this saga has played out in North America and also broaden the conversation by talking with Rabbi Aiello about her work in Italy with the descendants of Jews who were forced to convert after Spain and Portugal expelled all non-Catholics in the 15th century. So the non-PhD version of this is the Jews were essentially told convert or leave. And, and, and many did convert. And, and among those who converted, there were plenty who tried to maintain some sense of, of Jewish, Jewish practice underground. And, and, and some of those residual practices remained and were passed down through the centuries until, until today when, when families you know, who were brought up or somebody who was brought up Catholic had no idea why grandma um, lit candles on Friday night, say, or never ate pork. So um, that's that's like the non-PhD version very quick. There are different terms with different nuances for these groups of people. Crypto-Jews, Moranos, which we talk about as a slur to be avoided, B'nai Anusim, Conversos, but it's all part of one bigger historical narrative that we're gonna we're gonna touch on. And one thing we don't directly address in the conversation, how many people are we talking about? And it's, it's obviously a very difficult to give a number, but according to a recent Times of Israel article, just talking about this, the New Mexico, a quarter of the 80 settler families of New Mexico um, who, who came up from Mexico in the, in the 16th century were conversos fleeing the Inquisition. 
And that means today, 30 to 40% of New Mexico's 1 million Hispanics have at least one crypto Jewish ancestor. So we're potentially talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And over the last few decades, for, for reasons that are partially clear, I think the internet and things like Ancestry.com have a, have a strong role. More and more people are seeking out rabbis and Jewish communities to connect with their Jewish heritage. Some are embraced like long lost family. Some are, are, are really cruelly turned away. And, and many are authentically seeking to reconnect with their Sephardic roots and finding only Ashkenazi-centric spaces and, and discovering um, a disconnect on, on top of everything else that's, that's happened over the centuries. And all this is transpiring as many Jewish communities are seeking to address racism within and become spaces where Jews of color can be full participants and and the the Converso's B'nai Anusim story is a different story, but it's part of a, a larger narrative of, of of not all Jews looking the same, not all Jews praying the same, and and um, you know and how we um, certainly white Ashkenazi rec- reconcile with that and and make space for that. So in short. There was a lot to talk about on this show. And of course, don't cover nearly all of it, but I think it's a good start, a, a really good start. Um, our guest really brought a lot of knowledge and experience to the table and two very different perspectives. One, uh, one an Ashkenazi um, scholar, rabbi, and, and the other really grew up steeped in, in Sephardi culture. So we have a very, you know, two very different takes. So... Before we get to the interview, just a reminder that the essays discussed on this show are available to read totally for free at the Evolve website at that, that's evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And um, the essays are never required reading for the show, but we recommend checking them out. I think it really um, makes for a deeper, richer learning experience. Okay, I'm excited for today's guests. Rabbi Leila Galberner is Dean of Students at Aleph, Alliance for Jewish Renewal's ordination program. She is Rabbi Emeritus of Kolami, the Northern Virginia Reconstructionist Community, and she holds a doctorate in medieval Jewish history from UCLA and ordination from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. And she's literally written a book on this topic. She is the author of On the Western Shores, the Jews of Barcelona during the reign of Jaume el Conquerador, 1213 to 1276. She is also author most recently of Listening to the Heart of Genesis, A Contemplative Path, which offers a fresh approach to the stories and themes of, of the first book of the Torah. We have links to both those works in the show notes. And Rabbi Barbara Aiello is the founder of Synagoga Ner Tamid del Sud, which means the eternal light of the South. And that's a reconstructionist affiliate in Italy's Calabria region. The town is Sarastretta, if I'm saying that right. Um, in 2004, she became the first woman rabbi appointed to a pulpit in Italy, and I believe is, is still the, the sole non-Orthodox rabbi still working in the country. She was born in Pittsburgh and is the daughter of a liberator of the Buchenwald concentration camp. 
She's a graduate of Indiana University of Pennsylvania and holds a master's in social work from the George Washington University in our nation's capital. She received rabbinic ordination from the Rabbinical Seminary International and the Rabbinical Academy based in New York City. Okay, Rabbi Leila Gall-Berner, um, we're seeing you in, in Maryland. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And in a different part of the globe, uh, from calling in from Sarastretta in the Calabria region of Italy, we have Rabbi Barbara Aiello. I'm, I'm so excited to have you and, and, and that we were able to, to make this work. I am too. Thank you so much for inviting me where I'm in the toe of the Italian boot. And uh, it is so nice to be bi-continental today. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm really, uh, I'm really looking forward to this. So let's, uh, let's get started for, uh, on, a, on, a, on a fun discussion. Um, so I'm going to start with Rabbi, Rabbi Leila and, and, and a story, your, your Evolve essay. Um, you begin telling us about a man named Jose, although that is, that is not his real name, and, 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 and talk about his experience of, 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 of trying to discover his, his Jewish roots. And, and he really seems like a symbol for so many, so many people who've gone through similar experiences. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what, what prompted him to, to come to you and, and, and sort of what that experience taught, taught you. Sure. Um, well, his name is pronounced Jose since he is from Brazil. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, his beginning of his Jewish journey began when he went back. He's an engineer and he was from the United States. He lived in the United States. Um, he went back to Brazil to visit with his elderly father, who was in the process of transitioning to the other world. He was in the process of dying. And his father said to him, you are the oldest uh, son and uh, you must now carry the secret. And he said, what is the secret? And he said, look under the bed. There's a box there. And he took the box out. And inside this box was a, um, a smaller box in which there was a mezuzah. There was a partially torn cloth, the parchment for that mezuzah, which still had the Shema and part of the, the Hero Israel prayer and part of the Ve'ahavta, and you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, and uh, a brass key. And he said that brass key belonged to our house in Saragossa, Spain, many centuries ago. There was also a parchment wow. which included the deed to that house in Saragossa. And he said, we are Jews. And we came to Brazil in uh, the, uh, after the expulsion from Spain, shortly after the expulsion from Spain. And we have hidden our Judaism, but we have practiced many things. And he began to point out to his son what those many things were that they practiced in secret. And Jose took this all in very, very emotionally. And when he came back from his visit with his father, 
who passed away, um, he indeed began to seek out Jewish community. And he ended up in my congregation and uh, sought me out. And he said, Rabbi, I need to learn as much as I can about Judaism. Will you teach me? And every Shabbat after services, we would clandestinely go off and I would teach him as much as I could. Why clandestinely? Because he didn't want anyone to know. He, he, he felt that uh, uh, people would not recognize him at that point as a Jew, but mm. he showed up every, every time for Shabbat services. Uh, we weren't at that point having services every week, but he showed up every single time that we had services, and we would go off and have lunch together. I think the congregation thought perhaps we were having some sort of affair, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I was teaching him Judaism at that point and uh, he became very, uh, very observant in the time he was with our congregation. And you, you had studied Spanish, medieval Spanish Jewry at, for a PhD. You, I mean, you had, you had done research in Spain. He, he knew none of this when he approached you. You just well, happened I to think, be. I think that the reason that he came to our congregation was that he did, he did know about this. He knew from the literature that the congregation had posted about my background that I had just finished my PhD in medieval Jewish Spanish Jewry. I did my dissertation on the Jews of Barcelona in the 13th century and that this was an interest of mine. I had lectured about not only the Jews in medieval Spain but also about the crypto Jews in the American Southwest. So he was very very interested in that and he knew that I would be sympathetic and empathetic to his uh, to his identity and it, it began our conversation began from there so I think before we go before we go further I'm, I'll I'll open this up to to both both of our guests if, if, you, if you you each want to chime in what what do you think our, our our listeners should know just in terms of the basics what are what are Sephardic Jews and, and what are some of the, the terms we use? Conversos, Moranos, B'nai Anusim, like obviously that all of these, those questions could, um, could be, could be a course or, 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 or a doctoral program of study, but what are, mm -hmm. what are some of the basics we need to know so that this, we have a framework for, for some of what um, this, this gentleman and, and so many others have, have gone through. Well, I would start by saying that um, I refer to the Jews who were hidden and who came over to the New World as crypto-Jews or as Anusim. The crypto-Jews were the ones who hid their Judaism but practiced it clandestinely. And uh, publicly, they pronounced themselves as Catholics. Um, Anusim means forced converts. The ones who were uh, converted in Spain to Catholicism to save their lives. Uh, I never use the term Marano because it's a derogatory term. Hmm. It means swine. And um, that's what the Spaniards would refer to the Jews and to Jews who, tra who uh, converted because they didn't really believe that they were Catholics, many of them. And I, I hand it over to Rabbi Barbara to elaborate on those terms. Thank you, Rabbi Leila. Thank you so much. 
we are uh, boots on the ground here for B'nai Anusim, children of the forced ones, just as Rabbi Leila said, Anusim meaning those who were forced. And how were they forced to accept adult Christian baptism? They were referred to as neophyti as uh, new Christians, a shortened kind of form for the word new, new Christian. And uh, we, we kind of approach it. I myself am a, am a bat anusim. I am the daughter of dis, uh, a, descendants, a descendant of those who were forced. And we kind of imagine the, uh, the definitions as an umbrella. And B'nai Anusim, the descendants or the children of the forced ones are the umbrella. And underneath are the, now we use the term Moranos because many Anusim refer to themselves as that. And I do what I, I am ta um, taking off on what Rabbi Leila said, letting them know that it is an insulting term and that Anusim is a much better term for them to use. But many of my congregants, and we are an Anusim congregation, uh, refer to themselves as Moranos conversos or crypto Jews. My family was or my descendants were crypto Jews in that they accepted adult Christian baptism, but they practiced in secret. And over 500 years since the time of the expulsion and, uh, and the Inquisition, many of the traditions that were practiced as Jewish traditions in secret became known as family traditions, the religious aspect of these traditions were lost. What, what I mean by that is, for example, right here in, in my, my village of Serastreta, where our synagogue, Nertemid del Sud, the eternal light of the South, is located, there are families who put a white tablecloth on, on the table on Friday night, light one candle, and if you were to ask them, and all the family must, must participate in the dinner, and many times the father will make a blessing for the children in Italian, Hebrew has long been gone, and um, if I, if I were to ask them, why do you do this? They would say, well, this is our family tradition because established Judaism was wiped out 500 years ago. People continued these traditions and it was also dangerous to admit that these traditions were, uh, were Jewish. So saying they're just our unusual family traditions was a way of, of, of explaining it. But we try to uh, focus on the umbrella on B'nai because it allows them, allows our congregants to make a direct verbal connection to the Jews of Spain as they attempt to uh, discover and eventually embrace their Jewish roots. I mean, we're at a point now where the time before we had, a, we had iPhone smartphones or, or Facebook seems like another world, but we're, we're going back to the 15th, the 15th century. And, and, and it seems like ancient history, but it's, it's, it's really, there's just such a direct line from them to the present. Um, I guess maybe another history course question, but do we, do we know what, what drove the, the Spanish authorities and the Catholic church to really root out Judaism to this, to this level? Was it, was it just pure pre Vatican II anti-Semitism, or were, were there other socio factors at play? It just seems like it's, it's, it's still impacting people's lives today. So I'm just curious what the roots of it are. I'll just be real brief because this happened to my family it goes all the way back to Toledo in Spain. And uh, I think it was th uh, theft. 
they wanted to steal the money, il bene, our wealth and our property. And they hung that on heresy that they were trying to convert these heathens. But I don't believe that that was the real reason. And I'm sure Rabbi Layla has more to say about that. Yes, um, until until the late 14th century, things were relatively good for Jews in most places. Um, but a series of factors came together in a confluence that began to deteriorate the situation of Jews in the Iberian Peninsula. First was the economic one that Rabbi Barbara talked about. Um, there was a real um, uh, beginning and increasing resentment of the economic prosperity of Jews and the desire to gain their their revenues and their income. There was also a uh, depression in the Iberian Peninsula because of climate. And here we see how climate plays into this. There were droughts and there were floods. And so the agrarian society was diminishing rapidly. And so uh, urban society was becoming much, much more important. And that's where the Jews excelled because they had been forced to in the previous centuries. So in 1391, there was a massive set of massacres of Jews throughout mm -hmm. riots and massacres of Jewish communities throughout the Iberian Peninsula that left many Jew smaller Jewish communities completely decimated and the larger ones severely weakened. Then you have uh, in the 1460s, you have um, two factors. One is that the Catholic Church, which had been very, very busy get, rooting out heretics in its own internal circles, had succeeded in rooting out the Catholic heretics, and now they turn to the Jews. And what you also have going on is the marriage of Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon, the two largest kingdoms of Iberia who united and began to do what had never existed before, which was unite the various smaller kingdoms under one uh, hegemony, which was the United Kingdoms of Espana. And yeah. once that happened, That's right. and, and Isabella was a particularly virulent Catholic and, and very much of a zealot, it began to be focused on the Jews as uh, heretics. And of course, as Rabbi Barbara said, the economic motivation was very, very high. And this is, this is just a couple centuries after Spain was a place of real ferment and, and exchange on, on uh -huh. somewhat equal footing of, or maybe not, well, maybe not equal. Was, I wouldn't say it was equal footing, but it was certainly um, uh, pretty good pretty good. So there was a real deterioration. Yeah, I'd like to add that, um, that sometimes as we as we gather the um, the B'nai Anusim and welcome them into our congregations, and we, we hope that welcome is genuine. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment as well. The, um, uh, the historical reference to the Spanish Inquisition is misleading. 
and uh, and, it, and what it does for many southern southern Italians and, and Italian Americans and Italian Canadians who are looking to uh, to establish their lost Jewish roots is uh, it is misleading to to say Spanish Inquisition because what happened in my family with the Jews we were forced from Toledo to Lisbon in Portugal from Lisbon to uh, central. Sicily, then to the coast, then to the toe of the boot, some of them also to the island of Sardinia, some to the Aeolian island chain, which is made up of Lipari and other smaller islands, all the way north to what is now Naples. And that was controlled by uh, Ferdinand and Isabella. And, uh, and it was called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, inter interesting and interestingly enough as well. So sometimes even the names we give to a historical phenomenon can be an ob obstacle in and of themselves. And, and uh, the Inquisition had existed long before it got centralized in Spain. So it wasn't just the Spanish Inquisition, but it, it refocused itself on the Jews. Mm -hmm. So I think this, this conversation is going to necessitate that we, we jump back and forth in, in time a little bit and, and jump back and forth across continents. And before I go back to to some of Rabbi Barber's story. Um, can you remind me again how I pronounce um, the man's name in Portuguese? It's Jose. Jose. Jose, all right, that's gonna stick with me now, okay. From what I understand, his, his experience and the experience of so many others like him on the North American continent was not such a straight line. Like it, he, he didn't just right away find a Jewish, a Jewish home. It was, it was hard for him to feel comfortable in American Jewish settings and also hard for him to gain acceptance. Can you just tell us a little bit, a little bit more? Sure. Well, first of all, the, the Jews who came over from the Iberian Peninsula, which also includes Portugal, of course, was that they came, many of them, uh, interestingly enough, on Columbus's ships and on the ships of exploration from Spain and Portugal. And they came to uh, the New World, first to Recife, Brazil. That's why his family ended up um, settling there. But eventually they, they started coming to Mexico, which was known as Nueva España, New Spain. And little by little, they started moving into what we know as the American Southwest. And um, the reason for this is they were trying to get away from the long arm of the Inquisition. So in the 1600s and in the early 1700s, for a variety of political things that were happening in the New World, they moved into the American Southwest. Once they started settling there, they maintained their very, very clandestine identity. They were in their small and very endogamous communities. They married only amongst themselves still maintaining their uh, Jewish customs as much as they possibly could. But like Rabbi Barbara was saying, um, progressively losing the religious part of it, but maintaining these customs as family and cultural customs. And this is what was happening for Jose also in Brazil. They lost the religious elements, but maintained the cultural and family customs. Mm -hmm. Um, 
It was only really in the late 20th century that they began to be having connections with um, American Jewry when a few rabbis established contact with them. And some of these rabbis were from the Latin community in Argentina and other places. And little by little, they began to poke their heads out into the American Jewish community, which was um, predominantly Ashkenazic. And that's where the, both the blessing and the curse was. The blessing was that there were Jewish communities that wanted to welcome them. The curse was that the Ashkenazic communities had no idea what to do with them, and they essentially expected them to merge into the Ashkenazic world without any problem. And of course, the crypto-Jews needed, yearned for, and wanted Sephardi uh, culture and elements in their lives and weren't finding it in Ashkenazic communities and congregations. What's, what's a couple examples of, of differences, just well, either of you? The little that they knew of religious life were so different. Um, the liturgy was different, the little of the liturgy that they still knew, the customs were different. Um, uh, and the whole language of prayer was very Eastern European in the Ashkenazi community, something that was entirely foreign to them. Davening, for example, is something Davening. we did not have, we did not have at all. Um, one thing I'll add to that, uh, Rabbi Leila, if I can, is that, um, I, uh, I have often been asked when I say I'm from Pittsburgh, they say you're from Squirrel Hill, Squirrel Hill is um of course that is where the massacre was sadly mm. but um it was the ashkenazi neighborhood and i didn't even know it existed which gives you an idea of how separate the two cultures are as Layla was was sure. uh was so accurately pointing out and um i i remember my mother had a mother's helper for my daughter who was, uh, for my uh, sister who was disabled. And this girl came from the Ashkenazi community and she fell in love with a local boy who was Sephardic and the families went crazy. They couldn't, they, they were, they wanted to break them up. This was like, this was a, an interfaith marriage in their in their mind, in a, at a at a at a time when the people in these in the Sephardic synagogue were completely um, uh, separate, very very separate in under in understanding about Judaism, and then I had another experience. So I had a high school friend. She she went to synagogue in the in the Sephardic area, and she invited me to Hanukkah into the synagogue so we go and there's a beautiful hanukkiah and the rabbis in the front and he lights the light kindles light on the the hanukkiah and he says and now let us join together and sing maotzor and so i started maotzor and everybody's looking at me and i thought aha 
I have since learned that was another difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardi culture. We are loud, a lot of loud music, a lot of loud, a lot of a spirited dancing. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we did not, our history does not include shtetls. We did not have separate little villages. We were culturally assimilated often on the coasts, on the coasts of, um, of Mediterranean countries. As uh, Anusim, uh, B'nai Anusim approached me here in Italy, um, uh, one woman came one time with a three-branched candelabra, and she said, uh, um, uh, I always knew our family was Jewish. My great-grandmother disclosed before she died. Very similar story to, um, to uh, Layla's story. And... Um, uh, and and uh, we had this candelabra in our house that was so, over 150 years old. And my grandmother said, never lose it, my great-grandmother, because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's for the Jews, it's for the Jewish Shabbat. And she said, but then people told me that's not true because you light two candles on Shabbat, not three. And come to find out that Fortunately, you know, I knew this tradition. I was able to help her because we use the middle candle as a shamus candle to light the other two, the same way that we do with the Hanukkah and the Hanukkah menorah. And we use the shamus candle to light the other eight. And uh, so there are things like that where, where at times Ashkenazi Jews would say to uh, Sephardi Jews who were just, you know, who, who are cling, clinging to a little thread in, the, in their lost tapestry that, uh, oh, you, you can't be Jewish, you can't be Jewish. And I know myself growing up, uh, people would ask me my name, and I would say, Aiello, and they would say, well, that's an Italian name, you can't be Jewish. And uh, of course, in, we, we recognize in North America, the surname Cohen, but we don't often recognize sacerdoti, which is Cohen in Italian. And uh, we do a lot of surname research and we, um, uh, we, we help, we, we look at the path that surnames have traveled from Spain in, into uh, southern, southern Italy. And uh, we create reports for people that are interestingly accepted by the Jewish agency in Albuquerque and are presented to the Spanish and, uh, the, Liz, uh, and the Portuguese government as proof of Judaism. And when you think about it, a, a report on surnames is considered legitimate, which just tells you how little we have, how little we have to go on. Okay, if you're enjoying this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Check out our back catalog for lots of other cool conversations. Do you want others to experience this level of dialogue? Please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings really help other people find out about, about the show. It's that whole algorithm thing that I don't really understand, but it works. Trust me. All right. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Rabbi Barber, before we, before we got on, on the air, you, you, you told me some of your, some of your story and it's just, it's such an odyssey and so moving. I almost, I almost don't know where to begin, but, but you said that, that essentially you you became you became a rabbi and started this journey to fulfill your your father's essentially dying dying wish. So I wonder if you can just 
tell us a little bit about who your father was and why, you know, why that was, why how that did was, this happen? Did how did all right. this happen? How yes. did you, I My, mean, you were an American. How did, how did you end up being the rabbi of, of Southern Italy? Well, um, I am in the town, in the village that has been uh, where my family has been from. Uh, my father was born and his parents and grandparents and great greats all the way back um, uh, for centuries. And, uh, um, and uh, uh, the synagogue is in a, in, in a part of the house that has been in my family for over, over 400 years. When uh, my, my father was in the Italian resistance and uh, later became part of the American army that uh, liberated uh, the Buchenwald camp and uh, my mother was hidden and, uh, and they met in a displaced persons camp in Rome wow. and they would have taken a visa to anywhere. Uh, and so it was, uh, the war was over in 1945, but of course there was a lot of turmoil in Europe uh, in the uh, succeeding years. And in 1947, they received a visa to go to the United States, to Pittsburgh, to a cousin, a, a distant cousin whom they had never met, who had agreed to sponsor them. In those days, you had to have a sponsor and a job to be admitted into the United States. And so they took it. That was the first thing that came their way. My mother was over eight months pregnant, made the crossing in 17 days in a re-outfitted American Army troop ship. And I was born just a few days after they, she got off wow. the boat. And, um, for, and I'm, I'm the first one in my family born in the United States as an American citizen, for which I am truly grateful. And, um, and my, my family found a Sephardic community. They found a, a community um, uh, in, uh, in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And uh, they were, they were, everyone was refugees, either from World War II or from the, from the Shoah, the Holocaust. And uh, uh, they were from Turkey, Greece, Spain, Portugal, and Italy. And the synagogue was configured in the Sephardic style where, there, where people that w uh, looked into each other's eyes in addition to hearing each other's voices, which is something that the Kabbalists, the Jewish mystics taught. And my father had a very hard time. He spoke five languages, but he had a difficult time with English. He said God did not make his mouth to pronounce English, and uh, he struggled. But before he died, um, he asked me would I do something to help the Jews of our town and help people find their Judaism, because at the liberation of Buchenwald, it brought my father back to his traditions. And um, I said yes. I had no idea what I would do. I had no idea. But as time went on, I had the opportunity to study and to become a rabbi. And for that, I am truly grateful. It's a very, it's a very challenging here in Italy. I am, I'm the, I'm the first and only woman rabbi, but even more significant, I am the only non-Orthodox rabbi in Italy. So it's uh, very challenging from the uh, looking at from the perspective of, of the clash of denominations. <laughs> right. You had said that um, that a lot of people come to you after they've been, you know, intentionally, um, you know, turned away by the Orthodox, almost chased away with a That's stick happened. like Shammai. Like, right. 
line. Yes, that that has happened. And uh, as a matter of fact, a woman who uh, whose name is Angela, uh, she is on our board. She's a classical violinist, a place for plays in Naples for the symphony there. And uh, she is from the town of Amato originally, her family, which was a Jewish settlement about a 10 minute drive from where I'm speaking to you now. And uh, she went when uh, uh, she had a little boy or son. And uh, as her son was getting, getting older, two, three, five years old time for Hebrew school, she was so excited. She went to the, um, to the synagogue, to a local synagogue in Naples and, uh, and, and uh, spoke to the rabbi there because she was ready to have her son to be educated. And uh, she talked about her, her, she used the term Moranos, her Moranos history. And, um, and the rabbi listened and said, um, the only real Jews at the time of the Inquisition, persecution, expulsion, were the dead ones. Your family it accepted Christian conversion, so they are apostates, and so you're not Jewish. And he turned her away. That's Angela was, was, I'll just finish my story. She was so dedicated to becoming Jewish. And I was rabbi of Milan, in Milan at the time. She was living in Naples and she was taking a five hour train ride twice a month to bring her six-year-old son to our Sunday school. Wow. Yeah. And he became the first bar mitzvah in our synagogue. Rabbi Leila, go ahead. <laughs> I, think, I think that when this story really illustrates something very, very important which is that a lot of the Ashkenazic synagogues do not accept the Sephardi conversos, crypto-Jews, etc., because they want to have a direct line of showing that they are legitimately Jewish. And many of them cannot do that because of their clandestine history. And so, and if they do, if they accept them as Jews, which is questionable, um, they want them, as I said before, to simply slide into an Ashkenazi minhag, an Ashkenazi custom. And that's really uh, not possible for many of them. And this I go back to the story of José. José uh, worshipped with us for several years, learned as much as he could. One of the things that he really wanted to do was learn, he had a beautiful voice, he wanted to learn how to chant Kol Nidre because there is a legend that the words in the beginning of the, right before the chanting of Kol Nidre say, Anu matirin lehitpalel im ha'avaryanim, which is interpreted as, we permit ourselves to pray with the avaryanim, with the transgressors, which they trans, they interpreted as iberianim, the Iberians. And so they, for Kol Nidre was very, very important to him. Yes. So I taught him Kol Nidre, and in the last year that he was with our congregation, he chanted the Kol Nidre and stood up on the bima, on the pulpit, weeping, and came into my arms after he finished saying, thank you for helping me come home. Now, at the end of Kol Nidre, after Yom Kippur was over, he came to me, he said, I love this congregation, I love the people, and I love you, but I can't stay here. And I said, why? He said, because it's not Sephardi enough for me. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And he had found a modern Orthodox Sephardi community in his city that welcomed him. And uh, he became much more traditional in his observance. And now he serves as the lay chazan, as the lay cantor of that synagogue. And we have had conversations about that. And he said that it was so important to him, so important to him that they not only accepted him as legitimately Jewish, but that the customs and the practices in that synagogue were much, much more Sephardi. They were Sephardi. It felt like home to him in a much more, much deeper way. And I think that that brings me to something that I really would love to say about Ashkenazi synagogues, that rather than simply saying, welcome, we welcome you and, and we tolerate you, which is a kind of tokenism, that if the vast majority of synagogues and communities in our country, which are Ashkenazi, um, really want to do a welcoming of Sephardi Jews and particularly of the conversos and the Anusim and the Bnei Anusim, what they need to do is integrate them into the community in really uh, deep ways. And I have identified at least four things that they could do to make that happen. The first is to incorporate Sephardi customs into synagogue life on a regular basis. Um, not just to expect the Sephardi Jews to uh, comply with fully Ashkenazic custom. The second is to have adult education that is not only about the Eastern European and Central and Western world, but to have adult education about Sephardic history and customs and learning. The third is to every year have some sort of celebration to welcome the Anusim and Bnei Anusim and the crypto Jews to have some uh, specific time perhaps around the time of the date of the expulsion from Spain to turn that from mourning into celebration. And the fourth is to recognize their Jewish status with a certificate of some kind as Sephardic Jews. And uh, I'm sure there are many other ways to do it, but at least to say, we not only welcome you into our Ashkenazic customs, but we celebrate you as Sephardic Jews. Uh, I think this is so very important. Uh, we offer a certificate, a status recognition certificate for, uh, for people who um, want to embrace their Jewish roots. Some people make formal conversion with us. Others say, I was never anything else. Our family was laichi. We were secular. We never went to church. And uh, uh, so we're not, I'm not, don't need to convert from anything. And we provide, uh, we provide a, a certificate, which is very precious to, to so many people. Very, very imp important. I agree with, with you, Rabbi Layla. And, uh, and also what you had to say about um, uh, kind of tolerance. It's really not in these days of, of, of celebrating diversity. It is accepting and appreciating the cultural the the cultural differences that Sephardim bring to uh to the to to the Jewish to the Jewish experience and uh and and look it you know from the simple things 
I remember making a Passover Seder one time with rice because we consider rice um, not, um, kosher for Passover and uh, brought brought the dish to the table. I had my some friends there and my friend's mother and my friend's mother said, you ruined Passover because I can't eat rice. I can't hold rice on the table. We can't do that. And I, I didn't even know. I didn't even know. And so I could understand, uh, I could understand kind of the outburst, but the education is really important. It's really important to educate Ashkenazi communities about the kinds of traditions, kind of beautiful traditions that Sephardim bring and, uh, and, and uh, bring, bring to the Jew, to the Jewish experience. And um, I know that uh, I, I, uh, I, your story about Yose is so important, but it is so, so highly unusual, I'm sure you know, that there would have been a, a mezuzah, a part of the scroll, uh, a deed to a house and a key. For most of us, we can, we have nothing because when when our when our ancestors were forced into Christian conversion, we had to take our holy books and documents and throw them into a, a burning pile uh, in the in the piazza in the of the of the of the villages of southern Italy, and they were burned and gone. And uh, so having anything at all is so is so magnificent and so unusual and so precious in its uh, in its entirety. Uh, I had a man, man that I knew in the village here, a young man, about 19 years old, was a couple of years ago. His name was Luca. And uh, he came to my door one day. He was so nervous. And I said, Luca, we know each other. Hello, welcome. He said, no. He says, I, I have to tell you something. He said, my grandfather died a year or so ago. But before he died, he told me to open his desk drawer and to reach into the way back of the desk drawer. And there was something for me to show a rabbi. And I said, well, sure, come in. What? And he took out of his pocket a yod, a hand-carved yod the little the the pointer that looked like that look, the shaped like like a hand that's used for the reading of reading of the torah and uh, he said what is this so i said come with me luca we went into the synagogue we opened the the ark took the torah out and i said your grandfather wanted you to know that your family was once jewish and one of the most moving moments was when was when we used this yacht and Luca, you touched the, the words of the of Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad with his grand his grandfather his grandfather's yacht, and uh, these are such precious moments to be celebrated, but never for for us to never forget the courage it took for Yose and for Luca to come forward. And how important it is that they are that 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 the moment is not lost, that they are welcomed and celebrated. I think I want to ask for, first to Rabbi Rabbi Layla, we in 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 certainly in the United States, the Jewish community is is, is part of a larger cultural social moment over reckoning with race and racism, racism within the Jewish community recognizing that not all Jews are white, not all Jews are Ashkenazic, certainly a much greater awareness and effort to embrace Jews, uh, 
Jews of color, and um, which <clears throat> is 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 a uh, is a term that that can apply to, to to lots of different people and different backgrounds. And I guess I'm wondering, are these are these stories r- related? Um, I mean the 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 effort to sort of reach out to Jews of color is is a little more recent than than Sephardic Jews. Is there does one serve as any example for another? Is it really the same story? How I guess I'm wondering if you can help um, help us think about any any relations here. I think that it is part of the same genre. That um, I would have to say, for example, that until I was an adult doing my academic studies, I never really knew that there were Sephardic Jews. And it was like this was a, um, a, a completely invisible part of the Jewish picture. Um, and also the first time I ever met an Asian Jew was the same thing. Um, and I couldn't believe that there was an Asian Jew. And I remember to my great shame that I responded. I didn't respond verbally, but internally I responded like saying, well, she couldn't be a Jew because she has Asian features and so on. And I think that this is all part of the same package, that we need to radically uh, change our idea of who is a Jew in our own time who is a Jew as far as a Jew of color, who is a Jew in terms of um, LGBTQ uh, Jews, who is a Jew in terms of Sephardic Jewry, who is a Jew in terms of um, not only how we look, but what our traditions have been and what our customs have been and so on. Who is a Jew if, uh, if we are Ugandan Jews who have been rejected by the state of Israel, for example. And we have to radically expand who we are and what we are. And that the, uh, that the ultra-Orthodox and, and even the modern Orthodox halachic parameters need to be expanded. Um, and we need to be at the forefront. The Reconstructionist movement needs to be at the forefront of expanding those parameters. Um, they are all part of the same genre of uh, looking forward. I think that um, uh, in our time, we can't afford not to do that, not only because it's the just and right thing to do, but because Judaism is contracting. Uh-huh. And um, we don't want it to contract. And these, all these different groups have tremendous richness to bring to Judaism. Yes, and, and I, I agree with, with you, Rabbi Leila, and I believe the timing couldn't be better. It was 17 years ago when Angela brought little Alessandro to, my, to Lev Kadash Synagogue in, in Milan because she was so um, humiliated by the rejection that she received in the Orthodox community. Uh, and 17 years later now, as we're talking about accepting and appreciating and celebrating diversity, it is uh, 
I have such a strong identification with Jews of color because I experienced you can't be Jewish or Italian, just like you can't be Jewish or Asian or you can't be Jewish because you're black. And uh, um, and, and we're learning now that uh, that that Jew that that Jews come from all ethnic and racial backgrounds and need to be welcomed and uh, need to be embraced. And uh, we are contracting. And there is a whole world of Jewish people out there, people with Jewish roots who are just waiting for for us to open the door and extend the hand of Jewish welcome. And it is so vitally important, important that we do that. Okay, another short time out here. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or even the curricula we're producing, you can engage in citizen philanthropy and support us. Every gift matters. There's a donate link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Rabbi Barbara, you just recently published a piece in the in the Times of Israel arguing for the Italian government to adopt sort of a law of return um, in the mode that Spain had and, and Portugal have, have done. So I was, I was wondering if either or both of you could, could explain what, what the law is in Spain and Portugal, what impact it's had and why, why we think it would be good for Italy to, to follow suit. Well, I'll let I'll turn it over to Leah for explaining, and then I'll talk about how what we hope to do in Italy. Go ahead, Leah. Well, the um, the Spanish government uh, I can't speak to all the intricacies of it, but it essentially has has declared that Sephardi Jews who can prove their origins in one way or another can receive Spanish citizenship. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Rabbi Amy Pesach, uh, ha- her son has just received Spanish citizenship uh, through uh, the government by going back and showing through her his father, who is a Sephardi Jew, the uh, connections. And it's taken several years of of collecting the evidence, but they did go. They went to Barcelona recently. They presented all the evidence. They had an attorney in uh, in Barcelona who helped them, and uh, he has just been afforded Spanish citizenship. And And are there reasons, say, an American Jew would want Spanish citizenship or, or just only to reaffirm the connection to reaffirm hmm. the Spartac identity. And Absolutely. That's what I, I want. I want uh, my Portuguese citizenship from my great grandmother, Angela Rosa Grande, whose family was persecuted and killed for Judaizing in Lisbon. Um, and, uh, and my, my hope is that the Italian government will take a look at Ita- the at Italian Americans and Italian Canadians. Um, uh, 50% of the population was Jewish here in this in the toe of the boot, Sicily, Sardinia, uh, prior to the Inquisition. And 80% of the immigration to the United States and Canada comes from these areas. So the chances of an Amer- American or a Canadian having Ita- a, 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 an Italian Canadian or Italian American, I should say, having Jewish roots are greater than an Italian living in Italy. Uh, and we think 
think that this needs to be done in, in, in Italy because the Jews here suffered the same way as, the, as, as, as Rabbi Leila put, uh, put it so well, the long arm of the Inquisition reached right into, into Italy. And, uh, and Jews that had run from Spain, built synagogues, Talmud Torah, um, cemeteries, all of those were destroyed all over again. Definitely, we are the poorest region economically, and the least populated in uh, in all of all of Italy. And if indeed in some of these villages that are practically abandoned, houses are being sold for one euro, surely reestablishing the uh, uh, the uh, citizenship connection for people who were driven out is more important than selling a house for a euro. <laughs> this has been such a fascinating um, conversation. We, we, we could keep going. I, I think we, we, unfortunately, are just about out of time for the format. So I wanted to give each of you a chance to close. We've, we've talked a lot about history, where, where we've been. And I'm just wondering where either of you or both of you see this work, this rediscovery going and, and impacting the Jewish world or, or where either where you see it's going or where you'd, where you'd like to see it go? I, I think the more we know, the more we know about the Anusim, the Conversos, the Crypto-Jews, the more they make themselves known and the more we welcome them, the richer Judaism will be. And that's what our goal should be. Um, and not to simply subsume them because if we subsume them, we destroy a culture. I agree. I, I believe that, the, that we are at a, a really critical time in Judaism. We can either become more ingrown and, and, and less flexible, or we can open the gates, open the doors wide. And, and those of us who have had the blessing of growing up Jewish, by just a matter of weeks, I could have been born here with no Jewish education because established Judaism was wiped out. So I was given a wonderful gift of having a Jewish education as a child, the daughter of Abad Anasim. And, and with that comes a tremendous responsibility to share it and, and to continue to let people know that there is a whole rich cultural group of Jews who are just waiting to be part of Klal Israel if we will extend the hand of Jewish friendship to them. Amen. Rabbi Leila, Rabbi Barbara, thank you both so much for this for this conversation and, and everything you, you've shared. I, I certainly, we hope we have the chance to talk again in this format and, and meet in person. I, I hope to set foot in Italy uh, again one day and, and, and meet your congregation. So um, thank you both so much. You are most welcome to Daraba. Mille, mille grazie. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Rabbi Leila Galberner and Rabbi Barbara Aiello about the essay, Sephardi Crypto Jews, Real Jews or Remnants of a Distant Past. So what do you think of today's episode and especially bringing in two very different perspectives. We want to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversations and that includes you. That's, that's you. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you have. You can reach me, bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. 
and we'll be back soon with an all new episode. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.